90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm hanging in there. How about yourself? Oh, we're we're making it through. We're getting a little bit warmer. It's it's fake spring here. Oh yeah, we had our first big outside field trip this week. We we're supposed to go outside earlier in the week during class time, but the winds were such that it looked like the apocalypse outside. <laughs> like, yeah, you all had a giant dust cloud and everything was visible on satellite. It's my favorite. Um, it's my favorite little meteorological symbol, the blowing dust, like the S with this little line through it. And that's exactly what was happening. Uh, trees were coming down at Sarkis. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. That's crazy. Yeah, they were falling over. And I thought, you know, maybe we shouldn't do our outside exercise <laughs> when literal trees are falling over. Um, so we went out into the field for the first time. Yesterday, that was very exciting. It was a little bit chilly, and everyone said, isn't it too cold? And I said, it is 40 degrees. We're going outside. <laughs> so, yeah. there was. And earlier in the week here, we had hail. What? <laughs> we had accumulations of hail. Like, I have a picture of a double handful of probably between pea and dime size hail. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It's been weird. I feel like it's too early for this kind of weirdness, but today was a lovely day, so mm -hmm. I watched my little dinosaurs run around the yard. It was like 75 degrees. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you the hail photos now. Oh, so please. you can <laughs> Do you... you can oogle the way I did. Uh, it was, yeah, it was very surprising That's for this time of year. And we've had a... Uh, I don't know if this person listens to the podcast. They didn't mention it, so probably not. Uh, but we always sell hail rulers in spurts after hailstorms. <laughs> and we had somebody that was international send me photos of, they had a little Rubbermaid tub that had like a tennis ball, a baseball, a golf ball. Like they had all the standards oh, in this little Rubbermaid tub that they would keep in their car. That's awesome. <laughs> and they had some tennis ball size monsters. My gosh. I guess I did see that big old honky that was headed your way. That was a pretty huge storm. Mm -hmm. Man, that's yeah. That's a lot of hail. Yeah, that's like piles of hail. That's impressive. Yeah, no, it it accumulated like snow. There's you know little. There's some dust on our deck that my wife said. Well, it's from the roof. It could be. I think it's more <gasps> likely the nuclei oh, from the piles of hail. Man, you've got because there's no gutters that run to that area. Oh my gosh, that's impressive. That's impressive. And totally, I mean, that's totally legit. There was all that yeah. dust in the air anyway from, so I could see that. Um, there were, there was so much dust and it blew so hard that the next morning there were, and I know we've talked about this on the show before, <laughs> you could see sedimentary structures in the dust that was collected on my um, windshield. Yep. Yeah, like little bitty sand <laughs> waves and stuff. Mm -hmm. Did you get it in under the window sills and in your house? Um. Uh, yes, a little bit. It was very dust bowl ish, ish here, which we're getting all new windows in our house tomorrow. So hopefully that never happens again. 
Right. And hopefully not while your window's red. Uh, yes, correct. <laughs> it was it was really cool, though, because we're still, as I, this is my second year of teaching sedimentary petrology. And as is no surprise to you, I find myself still talking about fluid dynamics and like the physics of sedimentation <laughs> because that's what's exciting for me. And so that dust storm happened and the next day in class, everyone was so excited to show me the pictures of their little sed structures to talk about the dynamics. And the first thing out of their mouths was air really does act as a fluid. <laughs> and I was so Whoa. proud. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Never been prouder. Um, this is really weird weather week. Yeah. Let's hope it doesn't keep going like that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we've talked about before how different weather and temperature structures cause different types of precipitation, how they can bend sound differently. Uh, we even talked a little bit about how that aff affected some battles. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking that I kind of want to write this show called The Geology of War. So here it is. <laughs> Which is very exciting because um, another professor and I were discussing what a cool, we have these things called presidential dream courses at OU and they're courses where you get money to bring in speakers from like around the world to talk about whatever you're talking about and what a cool class this would be too, right? Because... If they consider Arkansas around the world, I am available. <laughs> I mean, it is another world in many ways. <laughs> Number one, because you can't see any of your rocks because there's too much vegetation. Uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but I mean... So many political snipes that could go in there, but we'll just let those slide. I know. That's exactly what I said. You can't see your rocks. <laughs> but it's very interesting seeing your outline of geology of war because it's much different than the the class that we had. We were talking about like geologic things that have come out of war, like geologic advances, you know, advances in science, essentially. But um, this is more like, what do you need to know about geology to have a war? <laughs> yeah, if your goal is to kill as many people on the other side as you can, should you care about geology? Because it seems like probably not. Yeah. But it turns out you really should. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. Um, because here's the, here's the teaser. <laughs> it's estimated that up to 25% of the bloodiest battles and 25% of deaths, therefore, were on limestone. <gasps> so we'll get to that. <laughs> this comes as no surprise to me. I also hate limestone. <laughs> I love the, uh, the paper I found discussing this. The author said, not that there is anything inherently toxic about limestone. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, toxic on so many field camp students' sanity, though. <laughs> yeah. How interesting. Um, when we talked about balloons last week, though, I mean, it seems like military stuff and science does go hand in hand. It really does. Yeah. Uh, and military geology was a thing as far back, documented military geology, as far back as the Napoleonic Wars. That's the early 1800s. Really? Okay, so is that like geology is in taking account for the geography, or is it like resources and such? I think it was more of the geographic landforms resulting from the geology. Okay, okay. 
Because that's a huge thing in war, obviously. Yeah, so geology has effects on battles, on the plans for battles. Uh, also, we alter geology mm-hmm. by war. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's an interesting Man, espe- uh, side effect especially of Especially if you want to talk about, like, rivers and stuff, right? Like, not just, like, access to water, but, like, moving across water and all that. I would think that that's got a huge thing in terms of planning and altering. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've been listening to, so part of our New Year's quest, remember we both set book goals. Yes. This morning I finished book number six. <gasps> okay. I'm on 10. I got Five it. of them are audio. One of them's print. That's okay. They all count. As long as the audio ones are not abridged, I count them. They aren't. And I've actually gotten really interested in biographies of different military figures. I mean, you are getting older. You know, that's exactly what I thought. Like, first, we didn't care about history of anything. And then we got into history of science. And now, as you start creeping towards 40, it's time to get obsessed with the different war leaders. Oh, man. Um, (laughs) So my husband already turned that approaching 40 corner a while back. But it's pretty funny because there was a... uh, yeah, there was a thing on Instagram, and it was a guy, and he's like, "That's turned forty. Better get into grilling or, or World War II history." <laughs> yep. So yeah, okay, here we go. <laughs> so here we go, uh, and I was shocked at. So there is a USGS publication of all of the documents that the USGS produced in support of the war effort. Wow, which one? The, the USGS has been around a while. Well, so World War II. Okay. The bibliography was over 100 pages <gasps> of documents they had produced for the war. Specifically for Just it? Just a listing of them. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, an unreal amount. And we'll get to how that came to be. Which is really interesting since it's not like a lot of World War II battles were fought on American soil. It's true. Hmm. Which made it even more important. Ex- oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Take me there. Okay. So the ways that geology is important. The first one you've already mentioned is terrain. Yeah. I mean, you can't get away from that I mean, one. <laughs> yeah. Geology influences what the landforms are. And the landforms make it easy or hard to be marched across, to have tanks drive across them, to put runways in. They give you a place to hide, or they give your enemy no place to hide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you think about things like the uh, like the Delaware water gap, all these water gaps, I always think about that because there are a couple of water and wind gaps where we have field camp, and it's like what a it's the only way to get across is this one yep. tiny slot in this mountain ridge that goes along forever, right? Or even not in war, but in Oklahoma, you know, there's the buffalo kill site. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's a big natural valley. We're going to run buffalo into it to kill them. Right. Exactly. And therefore we survive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Okay. So terrain, that's important. Uh, Resource location. Fighting a war, as I'm learning in these books, (laughs) takes an unreal amount of resources. (laughs) Uh-huh. 
yeah. And then we're not even, since we're talking about geology, we're not even talking about like food resources. I water resources for sure, but not. Yeah, but not, not food, not fuel, not ammunition, not all of the other hard things to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned, okay, like World War II. We didn't really fight that on U.S. soil. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got to get tanks, food, ammunition, guns, supplies, blankets, medical aid, and people around the world with 1940s technology and keep all those people alive by a continued supply of these things in a war zone. Okay, yeah. So you're going to have to boat and fly a lot of things. Or you can find things locally. Mm. If possible. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, the Japanese really needed phosphate for their war effort. And luckily, they had some territories that had a lot of phosphate. And that's some of the first things that tried to get secured from them. Interesting. Uh, Gravel. We're obviously not going to fill airplanes up with gravel (laughs) and fly dump trucks (laughs) over to Europe. Um. But you need gravel because, well, especially in a mechanized, early mechanized war, you have to build roads. You think about that, moving an army, and you've still got things that are, you know, think World War One. They don't travel off-road very well, so you're literally building the road as you go. This war engineering, which I didn't even think about in terms of geology, is actually very interesting to me. Because, yeah, like you want to drive a tank through a field, it's pretty hard to do if it's been raining, right? <laughs> like, so uh-huh. you're definitely not going to like move all your tanks through a field if it's been raining because they're just going to live there forever then. Um, so, yeah, that's a lot of roads and that's a lot of gravel. I mean, yeah, or you're going to get uh, supplies via air. Well, at that time, airplanes weren't aerial refueling and, you know, doing a turn and coming back to the U.S. They had to land. Yeah. And they have to land somewhere. Yeah. hmm And therefore, you better have some nice gravel, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, Germany was building so many bunkers in the Second World War, they depleted their sand supply. Wow. They had no sand to continue making concrete for like submarine bunkers. Oh my gosh. That is incredibly interesting. Hmm. That was one of the big limitations to them building more fortifications was they just couldn't get enough they sand to make the concrete. get enough sand for concrete. I had no idea. See, these are things you wouldn't even... You think about food, you think about water for troops, ammunition, but sand to make concrete. Because, I mean, it's not like Germany's got a ton of, you know, coastline to work with. So, wow. And even the occupied territories, I mean, you got to remember what the shoreline of Europe compared to the shoreline of the California coast looks like in terms of length. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, And getting that sand there. Yeah, just like you said. Oh, yeah. So, hmm, interesting. So resource location, that was important. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one of the more interesting ones was the intelligence and forensics aspect. Okay. So finding the source of things or locating enemy fortifications or tests, 
using geological data. So we talked about the Fugo balloons. Unbelievable. Last week. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we knew where they were being launched from because, <gasps> remember, they used sandbags. Sand in the sandbags. <gasps> uh-huh. So we oh took the sand God. to the USGS, and the USGS <gasps> said, that sand came from Honshu. Oh, Based on the diatoms that were in it. My gosh. <gasps> this was mind-blowing to me. I'm so glad I listened to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I Yeah, because you think about it. Now we're doing all these reverse computer models of where did the spy balloon come from. There weren't reverse computer models. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> We didn't right. really understand the jet stream yet. Correct. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So the USGS had a hand in that. Uh, they've also had a hand in things like nuclear test ban treaty monitoring. I mean, and that's still true today, right? Like we It's use, still very active. Yeah, yeah, we use seismic monitoring to figure that stuff out. And there's... Yeah, because a, a nuke test and a earthquake... While they have many similarities, yes. when you look at seismic and infrasound data, generally can be differentiated. Right. Even very far away. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we also had networks of hydrophones all over the ocean floors, many of them operated by Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And that was doing things like listening for movements of submarines yeah. and ships. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also has been used to locate things like where submarines went down because you hear the implosions on the hydrophone network and can locate them. Mm-hmm. Which could have to do with resources and, itself. Right. And also, too, you know, if we have a submarine, this wasn't a concern of World War II, obviously, but uh, later on, Cold War times, you have a submarine that has nuclear-tipped torpedoes that goes down, something like a... Thresher, uh, or was it Scorpion? I think there were four, I think four submarines went down in 68. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to know where they are because yeah. those are nuclear warheads laying on the base of the ocean mm-hmm. floor. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And they even went to where some of these submarines sank because they were trying to find uh, more of the wreckage or get honed in on it because they knew the general area. And they would detonate explosives in the water at different depths and monitor the propagation to get the current propagation conditions for the hydrophone network calibration. Wow. That's cool. So that's geophysics, really, not geology, but we'll, we'll lump them in. It's fine. It's the same three first letters. <laughs> right. Same as our podcast. Exactly. <laughs> and, well, then, so those, those are kind of the main categories of wartime geology mm-hmm. that I would think about. What about you? I, I mean, if I was, like I said when we started, this is not how I would think about like geology and war. I would think of it in terms of the geologic technologies that get created because of the wartime need. And that really just goes back to like funding and money, right? We're going to okay, pay yeah. right away to figure this stuff out. Um, and that's kind of, 
that's kind of more what I was thinking in terms of this, like radar technology or, you know, the engineering technology of rivers, things like that, that would go into, you know, making better, making better bridges due to the type of rock you're building on and how that translates then into, you know, civilian gain down the road, but the immediate need was funded by like a war effort. So that's how right. I think of geology and war. So this is a super cool take that I was not going down this direction at all when I thought about geology and war. Obviously, the big deal about, you know, we figured out we figured out the geomagnetic polarity time scale because of war, right? <laughs> we were towing magnetometers behind ships to find submarines and figured out that there were magnetic polarity shifts along mid-ocean ridges. So, right. Yeah. So, okay, well, here's a few other little nuggets before we get into some examples, and one <laughs> of them was the magnetic ocean floor banding. Oh, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So most battles, as it turned out, are fought on Permian, Triassic, or Upper Carboniferous <laughs> rocks. The, where did you get that stat? That's unbelievable to me. There is a paper <laughs> that has determined. Oh my gosh! I don't remember how it was a lot of battles. Uh, what what rock formation they were fought on? What its age was? I feel like that should be a fun paper. Yes, it probably should, mm-hmm. and it probably still can be. This is a very interesting statistic to me. Mm-hmm. So. I know you'd like that because it uses geological time scale. <laughs> yes. Which is one of those things that if you know it, you know it. And if you don't, it all sounds like blarty blur. <laughs> um, so immediately my mind goes to like, what is the terrain associated with those time periods? Right. That's immediately right. what I'm trying to think of, you know, and the Triassic is, could be different wherever you are. But I mean, during the Permian, we're in Pangean configuration and there's a large, mountain range in the middle of Pangaea, but in a lot of other places, it's really flat. So that's an interesting thought. Like, are battles fought now on the Permian because they're these, like, flat, open fields where armies would meet? It's interesting. Right. Well, it's changed so much, right, too, since the Revolutionary War of line-up and fire. Mm-hmm. The right. trench warfare yeah. of World War One the mechanized war- warfare of World War II, and now robotic warfare, well, guerrilla warfare in between Vietnam, Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they, the USGS saw all this stuff going on with World War II. Everybody was chipping in for the war effort here in the U.S. And they said, we want to contribute. And the Army said, okay... Thanks, but we don't really know what you could do here. <laughs> so they picked a random country. I don't remember what it was. I think it was like Somalia or something. They, they just picked a random place in the world and wrote a detailed report that they thought was everything they thought would be pertinent to war making in that country and sent it to the army. <laughs> Magically, shortly after they did that, the military geology unit was created in 1942 and had about 100 employees. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is so cool. That makes me so proud of the USGS. Right? They're like we yep. we don't need your we don't need your input. Thanks. And they're like, "Oh yeah. <laughs> Watch this." 
<laughs> Here's all the ways geology matters to you. Like that is so great. How is that not held up as this as a broader impact? <laughs> like what a group. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's no broader impact than that example right there. Yeah. Well, what I thought was interesting was the military geology unit operated until 1975. I'm actually surprised that it's not still operational. I am sure it has been absorbed into some sort of Pentagon. Yeah, that's probably true. It has to. Yeah, maybe they farmed it all. It probably got far too classified. (laughs) Correct. Yeah, they just want you to think we're not thinking about geology. Right. Yeah, super, super. That's such a great flex. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Awesome. And in the process of researching this, I found a new book that I need to order. That's <laughs> called Military Geology and the Geography of the American Civil War. Uh-huh. I bet that's going to be a lot of like very detailed rolling hills of whatever country or whatever county. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, you know, we're very close to a pretty significant Civil War site here. Yeah. Pea Ridge, man. Yeah. I was drugged there many times as a child. <laughs> Yeah, so we have the, the Pea Ridge Battlefield Park that's probably 45 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Like I said, I was drugged there numerous times as a child. So, yeah. And uh, and that's what I remember about it is, you know, thinking about, oh, this hilly area over here, you know, and how looking at it, you can see how you have to plan for the terrain. Right? Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. So, some ways that war modifies geology. Yeah. See, now this one is where I went for sure. So, obviously, that figuring out the geomagnetic polarity time scale, which is the basis of magnetostratigraphy, which we'll talk about when we talk about the our show for next week, um, that all came from trying to towing a magnetometer behind a ship and noticing that the magnetometer was picking up different polarities in a symmetrical fashion on either side of the mid-ocean ridge, representing when those rocks cooled in different um, different polarities of Earth's field, because it's a constant record of magnetization and a constant record because the lava is always flowing out. Right, and we've talked about that, I believe, when the ship called the El Tannen. Mm, I don't know, actually. I think it was. We've talked a little bit about it many years ago mm-hmm. on here. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. I always forget those little tidbits. <laughs> so, yeah, see, that's why I'm, I have a massive trivia bank, but I'm never any good at trivia because it's always pop culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, there's another obvious one to me of more affecting geology. Mm-hmm. It gets has something to do with getting really hot and making those kind of rocks you don't like. <laughs> what do you mean those kind of rocks I don't like? Metamorphic rocks? Yeah. But what's cool about this is when you blow up a bomb somewhere, right, specifically a nuke, and you make these new rock types, it is analogous to impact cratering, which I am really into. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, 
the Trinitite is the rock that was made at the Trinity site, the detonation of the first atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that all depends on like where you blow your bomb up, right? Because you're going to fuse stuff together. And that all depends on the underlying bedrock. But that's true if you had a massively huge and hot meteorite coming in too. It is. And in fact, if you remember way back when we had that meteorite come in over Chelyabinsk, Russia, mm -hmm. we talked about that. Mm -hmm. I had done some calculations on things like the blast signal from the detonation. And to do that, I used a book that was meant for calculating blast effects of nuclear weapons. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Love it. There's also been a lot of quote-unquote peacetime applications of the atom. Uh. <gasps> uh, Project Plowshare is an interesting one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, where we decide that we're going to send small, like, 10, 20 kiloton nuclear weapons into oil wells mm -hmm. and frack that way. <laughs> There's a lot I will say There's about this, but I will not say it. Because I, we're used to work in the oil industry. So, yes, go ahead. <laughs> There's also a book about the peaceful applications of nuclear weapons, which is one of the best titles ever. Uh, are we talking about when Elon Musk said we should nuke Mars? To... <laughs> is, <laughs> right. is that a peacetime application? Mm, okay. So this particular book talked about things like, well, hey, road cuts for interstates sure take a long time. Oh, man. Let's do the math and see if we could just detonate a nuclear weapon and make road cuts. I mean, that will work. That What's the radius of the fallout and for how long? Do we care? <laughs> I guess not if you're driving 80 through it, right? Oh, my gosh. Yep. <laughs> That's outrageous. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of good books, but I do not have military geology and geography of the American Civil War, so that'll be on my list. Okay. That's excellent. I might have to be on my list. You've you've given me a lot of good ones lately, so yeah. Um another interesting one was in the first world war. The Western Front was subjected to such intensive shelling. The bedrock permeability was altered. That's impressive. To what depth? I don't know. I couldn't find a lot of information on this. Okay. But just that there was so much shelling that it cracked up the bedrock from all the shockwaves. Gosh. I mean, that's not surprising, but you got to think, I mean, to change the permeability over a large area, like it probably did, it's really the constant breaking apart. I mean... Those crystal interfaces are planes of weaknesses, so this is not surprising. Yep. Mm -hmm. And also, I believe this quote was actually from the author of the American Civil War geology geography book. Okay. Uh, I saw an interview with him online, and he said, well, the Civil War started about 500 million years ago. <laughs> to which... Which was the most geologist thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh-huh. And his point in saying that was? Well, it's all about rock types, but it also reminds me of when a former igneous and metamorphic professor <laughs> inadvertently disturbed some casual hikers when we were on a field trip. Mm-hmm. 
they asked what we were doing, and he said we were out there looking at recent volcanism. <laughs> and they said, well, how recent? He was well, very. 50,000 years ago. And they were very upset when they found out that we were, well, no, we were talking very recently. We were talking like six. <laughs> so the point of his quote was they've actually called limestone, he and uh, a researcher that he worked with, killer limestone. Because about 25% of the 25 bloodiest battles of the American Civil War that they looked at occurred on limestone. Yeah, so limestone just makes these big open spaces where it's easy to get shot at and hard to hide. I mean, that that makes total sense by the way it's deposited. Um, yeah, so I guess you're going to... 25% of the 25 bloodiest battles. That's a very interesting statistic. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, when they're doing the, the training for Army guys, they have this saying like, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. Because they think it takes about four seconds for somebody to see you and aim at you and about six seconds for them to do it well. So, like, if you're running so, across this flat open space, like, that's what you want to tell yourself? Yeah, well, like, you would be behind something. I'm mm. up, you get up, you do your run or roll or whatever you're going to do, and then I'm down, ah. and you're back behind some form of protection. You can't do that on a plateau. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, do what? I'm thinking about the American Civil War and so like where it's where it was fought mostly and so the differences in the types of rocks that you would have in those locations. You know? So that's... I'm sure once you read that book and I will clearly probably read it too. <laughs> we'll have a lot to say right. about those rock types. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, there's there's that. There's also dolomite. Dolomite is harder and gives you more of a hill and valley-like oh. Would I wonder... That's good for hiding. It's right. bad for moving people and equipment. Right, Exa exactly, exactly. And it's actually bad for moving people and equipment because dolomite, quite literally, is harder to, more difficult to walk on. Um, and I wonder if there's anything about that in this book, you know, because I mean, it tears up boots. It tears up with, we have the tear pants dolomite out there at field camp. Exactly. The way dolomite weathers, we use the word tear pants weathering, because if you sit on it, it will rip your pants and it's like, it will cut you. It will shred the soles of your boots. I mean, when we did a lot of dolomite exercises, I was changing my you know, getting my boots resold every other year. So that's, I wonder if that's anything in that book that will be interesting to find out later on. Well, and imagine you're having to put boots on 50 to 150,000 people. Exactly. That's that's what I mean. Moving, the, obviously, you know, during the Civil War, you're not necessarily talking about a lot of rubber tires, <laughs> right? Right. But, but the soles of people's boots would certainly wear out much faster and as we know from all of human history once you start to wear down armies like that you're definitely going to lose right <laughs> and specifically they mentioned the battle of antietam in this article that i read okay and that's like so this was part of the maryland campaign right okay mm -hmm. there were five times more casualties on the limestone than the dolomite areas of the battlefield 
That is, wow. Because Antietam was like one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, right? It was the bloodiest. Okay. 23,000 yeah. people dead. Yeah. And in fact, on the parts of the limestone, it was one death per second for about oh four to five hours. Oh gosh. Just because it's the wide open space. Yep. Wow. So tick tock, one death per second for four or five hours. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hmm. Now, during this battle, some of the Union soldiers planted themselves up on a place called Cemetery Ridge. That was this spiny Dolomite Ridge. <laughs> okay. They had a great tactical view of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Until the Confederates started firing bursting shells above them. Oh. Your normal response to that would be to dig a foxhole, dig a trench. Yeah, you're not doing that in Dolomite. <laughs> not when you're on solid Dolomite. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, my goodness. So it was an advantage, and it became a disadvantage just based on the Pretty geology. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> uh, the same with the invasion at Normandy Beach. This one We actually surprising. sent civilian scientists. Oh, my gosh. To the beach before troops to collect sand samples. Oh, my gosh. Because if you've watched those pictures, that is heavy equipment that was storming the beach at Normandy, right? And so I think about the different types of beaches that I've been on, and there's certainly a lot in terms of the strength of that substrate. You know, a lot of difference. Wow. That's... Yeah, and hmm. there were some old French geological reports that indicated that they believed clay was underlying the sand. And Which that would have been really bad news. Would be terrible, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I found one report that says they even sent a scientist out there that collected a core while within range of German machine gun fire. Wow. And brought it back for analysis. And think about how different that would be if that scientist got caught. And they were like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you out here? Yeah. Wow, that's really scary. It's scary to find those stories of war where it could have been swayed one way or the other by one person. And this was certainly one of those cases. (laughs) Some USGS employee that goes, I wasn't even supposed to be here today. Exactly. (laughs) caught and like you know tortured and he's like ah oh, they're planning to storm the beach oh man like that's wow mm-hmm. I mean who knows that geologist probably had no idea why he got sent out there to do this but I am sure he did not yes <laughs> uh, and we recovered so they actually they made really detailed maps of Normandy Beach and they were numbered for control oh man okay wow. like map 40 was checked out to so and so and it better be back Oh, so yeah, they they had that. uh, Germans made resource maps for Operation Sea Lion, looking for things like gravel, sand, Mm -hmm. phosphate, and these are things everybody that can't necessarily be seen in satellite photos. So this is still the importance of having boots on the ground mapping geologists. Yep, Mm -hmm. and then uh, also interesting enough, the USGS military geology unit made the first English publications on permafrost. 
Really? All prior research on permafrost was in Russian. I guess that makes sense, actually. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. And then as a more recent example, I found a geologist whose job it was was to determine how guided missiles would explode in caves when we were searching for Bin Laden. Oh. What their effectiveness would be, what it would do to the cave. Mm-hmm. Could we guide it into a cave? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I also know someone who I think probably worked on something like this. They could never tell me what they did because they worked for the CIA, but it was during this time period and they were geophysicists. <laughs> So, yep. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. That's how important geology is, everybody. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you think that uh, geology is just to find oil or to do academic things. It's not actually very important to the defense of any country. Yeah, and in ways that I wasn't even thinking about. So, mm-hmm. And I look forward to hearing your show now on things that came out of wartime <laughs> geology because <laughs> that's the exact opposite of how i would have approached it yeah, that's so that's so great because I, when you sent this and you were like i said thanks for writing my syllabus and you're like what <laughs> i know i had to have mentioned this and subconsciously you're like yeah war in geology and you put together this entirely different take on it which is why it's awesome to talk to different people right because you come up with totally totally different things Oh, yeah. That's that's why we work together well on this podcast. Exactly. Because we're very, very different thinkers. Mm-hmm. That is exactly right. Except for we both certainly love fluid dynamics, particularly when it involves, you know, beer. Or food in general. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm going to go ahead true. and classify that as getting the dad bod again, approaching 40. <laughs> Absolutely right. And that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Woo! Man, this one is super long because it's 80 pages, so I certainly didn't read it all, but it's probably my favorite paper that's ever been written. So it is a lit review, and those that aren't super familiar with these, it's when somebody or a group of somebodies goes through and summarizes the current state of what's known about some topic mm-hmm. from I, the fundamentals to the most recent. I was once told that like you needed to do one of these to get tenure a long time ago. Like you were expected to do this review paper of your field, including your most recent contributions, which I thought was very I mean, interesting. There are a lot of 90s review papers that would back that up. Uh Uh-huh. There certainly are. And they're great. I mean, they're a fantastic resource. Um, But I've certainly never encountered one that is so interesting or that has an entire section that is called splashing and sloshing. (laughs) Or one called kitchen sink fundamentals. (laughs) Um, This would have been really great. We talked about the fruit number last week in class and... I'm going to bring this up. (laughs) Yeah, and if somebody sent this in, I'm sorry. (laughs) It was way back in the list, um, like years ago, and I don't have a name by it. So if you sent this in, I'm sorry, but thank you. Yes, thank you very much. And we should have gotten to it long before this. But culinary fluid mechanics and other currents in food science. 
by Matheson et al. <laughs> and yeah, it covers everything. And some of these papers we've actually talked about. Yes! <laughs> uh, like the coffee cup sloshing paper is in here. Mm-hmm. Yep. I really thought that flows at low Reynolds numbers we talked about too, but I've certainly talked about that in class. So we might have. Uh, there's one about the bubbles in Guinness that mm-hmm. we've talked about. We've talked about why wine cries. Mm-hmm. And this is it, so. This is just a review paper of our fun papers. <laughs> uh, sort of, and a lot of potential new fun papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drinking from a straw, pendant droplets. The Bernoulli principle and wine aeration. This is really that cool. That one was very interesting. Yeah, and I never would have like. I can't drink wine anymore because I'm 40 years old and I have too much stomach acid. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, I can't. I can't do wine. So I've never had like a wine decanter. So this was an extremely interesting um, section of the paper. I thought. Yeah, but obviously, and my favorite one. Has these Kelvin Himmel's ways, <laughs> right? And you know, I told you when I sent the paper, I said, "Really, just go through the figures." Yeah, <laughs> it's so awesome. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Um, so the wine aerator, uh, I knew about those, right? So you put the mm-hmm. wine in, and you get this uh, narrowing down of the channel that it flows through, and then it opens into the bottle. You create low pressure. You suck air in through little holes and it causes gurgling and you aerate the wine okay that's fine but the decanter yeah i hadn't ever really thought about until they point out and show a photo of wine getting poured into it and you get these ripples on the glass that are actually mixing oxygen into the wine that's the part i didn't know either i've never used a wine decanter and i thought okay whatever but i never thought about pouring the wine in like that to create those ripples. That is so neat. <laughs> and the, one of the next figures in the paper talks about a liquid mirror on a telescope. Mm-hmm. Where they use a reflective liquid and spin it to create a concave shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And normally I would go, okay, yeah, sure. But I actually just read an article about this the other day. It was very interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, they make these big, like, six-meter discs of reflective liquid and they spin them at like a eight nine ten second period how that's that's really cool because fluid dynamics makes a better mirror than precision grinding than something that actually big. grinding glass yeah that it's easier to transport too right they just drain it yeah mm-hmm. are we gonna make like Big Dyson spheres now, or big mirrors. So they talk about using mirrors <laughs> right. to, you know, reflect <laughs> reflect the sun to cool us off. Like, now we're just going to stick cocktail glasses up there. <laughs> right. <laughs> this triangular hydraulic jump. Also, when they were talking about, like, the kitchen sink and, right. and like, the food number. This is super cool. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely showing this in class on tuesday (laughs) very excited so there's also one of the figures figure nine talks about a merengani stress powered cocktail boat (laughs) and they have these little 3d printed boats and i thought is this a thing Uh uh-huh so i googled cocktail boats and i get lots of actual boats 
<laughs> like going drinking on them. Exactly, going on a cocktail cruise or something. <laughs> and then I find a YouTube video of this experiment from this paper that they're reviewing. Oh man. And these are little 3D printed boat shapes and they've got a well that you can drop your liquor in and a little slot on the back that it escapes through. And through the gibbs Morangini effect, it propels the boat around the glass. Oh, my God. So I'm going to 3D God. print some of these. Oh, my gosh. They're so cute. <laughs> I believe that one was an MIT study as well. Oh, of my gosh. This is so great. This, um, yeah, clearly the, the water oil, or, um, yeah, the water oil interface in figure six with those Kelvin Himmeltz waves is just amazing. Um, yeah. But yeah, these multi-phase cocktails, which I thought were a fantastic way to talk about a, a shot that has, you know, different layers of liquors. <laughs> it's stratification. You can make an inversion layer. Yep, you sure can. Exactly. Um, this is like the part where I went to... The part, the part in my life that was very traumatic, where I was in London and I ordered a black and tan because I'm an American and I'm dumb, and they were like, "What are you talking about?" And the guy said, "Come back here and make it," and I couldn't get it to stratify correctly, and he's like, "Get out of here." <laughs> <laughs> and it's obviously still traumatic for me. Yep. <laughs> well, it sounds like you just need some more practice. Yes, that was it. I was way too inexperienced to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a figure down in figure 13. Uh, oh, I, I love this one. They put an Oreo in a rheometer, <laughs> like we would use to measure the viscosity of something. And they've rotated the top and bottom cookies to get the rheological properties of the Oreo cream. <laughs> this velocity profile. <laughs> this is hysterical. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe this wasn't your paper. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> but I want to see this done on regular versus double stuff. Yeah. Or was it mega stuff now? They keep changing. Oh, God. No, that's not changing. That is another layer. It's disgusting. Mm, <laughs> and then Oreo great. thins. You've got five different data points there now. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Yep. Did you see Further that? Further testing is required. Exactly. <laughs> oh, this honey, honey and mayo extrusion. <laughs> Pretty rough, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't remember if we did this paper or not. It's on the formation of coffee rings. I don't. If we did, it was a long time ago. But that one was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also a lot of Schlieren photography in here. Yeah. Is this bacon with this <laughs> this bacon cooking one picture? Oh, the um, the artwork. I see. Well, the the bacon one. Oh, uh, what was that? That was uh, Leaden Frost Leiden effect. Leaden Frost right? effect. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, it's just a lot of. Oh, and this one, I know of a professor who has done a variation of this when he taught a heat transfer class in a geophysics department. Mm-hmm. Uh, figure 30, they are baking a cupcake, and they have thermocouples at different distances from the center. Oh. 
and then a time evolution of that. So what this professor would do is stick probes in steaks, and they would put them in his oven, and the students would MATLAB code oh my gosh the heat transfer model and predict the temperature evolution of their steaks and then we get to eat steak <laughs> like he had the whole class to his house and did this every every year when he taught it <laughs> what a great way to get the department to pay for a steak dinner <laughs> yep <laughs> that's amazing um yeah this this paper is fantastic this whole like the talking about porous media flows and coffee brewing because i was a barista for a while and so this one was very exciting for me in terms of looking at french presses versus you know espresso shots and mm-hmm. well did you scroll all the way to the bottom of the bibliography on this um i know i noticed it was massively long a thousand and fifty papers are referenced yeah like this is the i mean this is a book at this point right this isn't even a review paper yep mm-hmm. did this I mean, get you published? can look up in this table of contents like i am mixing a sauce go to page 23 for relevant literature yes unbelievable did this actually get published or is this just in the archive i am not sure okay I hope it did get published somewhere because it's amazing. We'll have to look. Let's see. The citation is just on the archive preprint. Right, right. But it's 2022. So depending on when in 2022, it could be coming out somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Because, I mean, imagine the peer reviews on this paper. Like, it's going to be brutal. <laughs> Like, I, yeah, I reviewed one paper this year, but it was 80 pages long. <laughs> <Like>. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, yeah, so it says this this manuscript was dated October 17, 2022. So oh, it's okay. back it's from the new. first peer review, if they're lucky. If they're lucky, I would doubt it. Yeah. Um, culinary fluid mechanics. <laughs> it's such a, like, what a cool. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yep, and the lead author is from University of Pennsylvania, which I do have some work to do at every now and then. There you go. Uh, so I may have to go track them down next time I'm up there. Mm-hmm. They're in the department that I work in when I'm there. So. Oh, great. That's really great. I love that yeah. in their conclusion, they say, you know, this sort of paper can facilitate new discoveries far beyond gastronomy by making science and engineering more accessible. Totally agree. Yep. I mean, this is all stuff that you could do with kids, kitchen science. Mm-hmm. This was fantastic. Man, 1,050. Yeah. Sorry, BMJ. This is where the next... <laughs> oh, gosh, I need a fun paper. It's definitely coming from this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except for well, if... food microbiology, <laughs> fundamentals, and frontiers. I don't want to know about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, if you have your own culinary fluid mechanics experiment that you would like to send into us. <laughs> Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? We are show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo, at Shannon Doolin, or at geo underscore Lehman. As always, thanks for keeping us going. You can support us too, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.